to welcome Dr. Brennan Peterson. So glad that you are here to join us on behalf of um, Yesh Tikva. I'm Devora Enten, and I'm the clinical consultant for this organization. And we are together today to talk about male, uh, men and infertility. We will probably include something about male factor, but primarily about how men cope with, deal with, and some of the, re the research around um, men and their way of navigating this world of fertility uh, treatment. Um, and so first, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really glad to be here. So um, yeah, uh, I, I work at a university in um, Southern California in Orange County and Chapman University. And I've been researching the kind of the intersection between psychology and infertility and its effect on couples for about 20 years. Um, I'm a professor at the university where I teach courses in uh, family development, and I also train graduate students how to be therapists. Um, I'm a licensed therapist myself. And um, yeah, I just really had a, a very um, kind of a great window into the infertility world in a lot of different ways. Um, I started out looking primarily at couples and the impact of infertility on their relationships and how their relationship patterns could help them increase um, their journey, increase their well-being through that difficult journey and decrease stress and decrease anxiety and depression. And I've also done a lot of research with fertility awareness issues and um, and then transitioned more later in my career looking at some male infertility uh, work and recently just wrote a chapter for a book on male infertility, um, summarizing a bunch of research. And that was, I think, how we got connected. And so it's been really interesting to um, to kind of get really into that into that research as well, not just from a couple's perspective, but that's always important too, but also just the experience of men in general. Yeah, I think we tend to primarily focus on the women, right? Because the women are the identified patient, no matter what we're dealing with. Right. Um, tell me, like, what are some of the highlights from the research or from your personal professional experience? What are some of the, the things that you want us to know about how men cope or deal with or interface with infertility? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing is that men have a very complex, rich, emotional reaction to infertility that has really gone unnoticed a lot. Um, I remember when I started studying infertility and writing about it, you know, it, it was focused on women and the writings would be, well, it's stressful for men, but not that stressful. And, and women can feel depression, but men really don't get depressed about it. They just kind of go on and um, some of that is just a lot of the way that men cope with infertility and what we were, it's common in, in a lot of mental health research to see men underreport anyhow, right? Kind of a, a little bit of a facade kind of behind a wall. So the fact that we've been able to start to really get a sense of that complex emotional reaction, what's happening for men has been really rich in terms of understanding just how um, complicated it is, right? Just how, how deep it is. Uh, the, the yearning for fatherhood, the, the desires and, and the grief they feel um, about the potential loss, um, some of the brokenness that men feel, some of the shame that they experience. Um, they experience depression related to it, related to these losses. And they oftentimes don't have as good of support networks as women do. And so they tend to cope a lot in isolation. And even coping with a support network is still challenging right but they don't have they don't have that oftentimes too and so i think all this is happening there's new ways we're starting to, to see it come out about like what they're experiencing but to me i think that's the the biggest point what is it about the shame like i can i can understand or imagine 
when a woman is struggling with her body not doing what it's supposed to do, right? Either because of known issues within her body or because of unexplained infertility. But what is it about the shame piece that a man might be holding, maybe either similarly or differently than a woman? Yeah. So much of it is is these cultural scripts about masculinity. And, and so masculinity is, you know, traditionally defined as um, strength, uh, stoicism, um, just kind of like not letting things affect you, um, not reaching out for help, being able to manage on your own. And I think infertility undermines all of that. And it's just so challenging. And so there's also this sense of like a brokenness, right? Like there's something wrong with me, particularly if it's male factor infertility. You know, I can't give my partner what she really desires. Um, you know, she really wants a child and, I, and I'm, I'm failing in that area. And one of the things we've really learned in, from the research is that men feel an incredible amount of, of um, pressure in their role to provide and protect um, a partner. And so if they're failing in that role to protect her from pain when they're the cause of it, it's this really kind of difficult situation that they, they can't find a way out. It's like an unwinnable situation for them. They're like, my, my wife is in pain. Uh, my partner's in pain. She's, um, you know, she wants a child so badly. and I haven't been able to do it. And she's searching for me to help support her in her pain, but I'm the cause. And so it's very confusing. And then I think at a general level in society, there's just a lot of shame with, male infertility, where, where in many cultures, virility is associated with masculinity, right? Like just, it, and it's a crazy idea, but that's just what's been there. To, to father a child, you know, means that you're somehow virile and a, and a, a true man. So there's this um, undercurrent of shame that goes in secrecy where, where you don't see a lot of people talking about male infertility, so to speak. A lot of men, a lot of like, say, prominent men, they don't they don't talk about their infertility. We see it more with more, more women are talking about infertility and some men do, but usually it's in relation to the couple, like their partner. It's not, it's very rare that you're going to find like a very prominent person in a community who says, yeah, I'm struggling with, you know, male infertility. I'm struggling with my reactions to this. Um, and so I think that's a part of the reason for the shame too, is just they can't fix it. They can't do anything with it. And, um, and there's just not a lot of, people to express it to. And then men with having low social networks to begin with, they're not good at talking about it. So they just bury it. Right. And they're just going to be like, well, I'll just, I'll just live with it and deal with it. Tell me a little bit more about those social networks. So how do you define a social network and explain to me a little bit of the difference between women and their social network and men and their, whatever they have, if it isn't a good one, social network. Yeah. I think social support typically is defined as when we have uh, a need or an emotional need, there are, there are people that we can reach out to and who will support us in the time of need. And so if you have really close friends who you are going through a struggle and you can reach out to that, you know, that, that's a, a protective factor against stress. And so men, just, men typically do have friends, but in my experience, at least men have less um, close friends that they really can talk to about, about, you know, confiding in, in, in them. And I think part of that socialization, like I think that we've looked at patterns where, you know, women tend to tend to communicate more with close friends at an early age, like even teenage boys, right? Like they're not really communicating at a deep level about what's really going on. They're just kind of, you know, ribbing each other and just kind of dealing with some of the 
the, the, the stresses that they go through, maybe they have someone to talk to, but a lot of times it's just like, you just buck it up and deal with it, right? So, so at some level, there's not a lot of, you know, these embedded networks of friendships. And what's really been interesting is that men are finding some of that online now where there's like online support groups for men that they're seeking out. And the anonymity of the internet is really helping because um, some of the research has also shown that men, they're less comfortable with say face-to-face -face interactions. They don't really want to go to like a group where, where everyone sits, you know, six people sit down and talk about male infertility. Um, they are really even reluctant to go to those physician appointments and talk about it. So, but if they can get behind a computer and they can kind of have a little bit of control over how they respond or who they talk to, there was this really interesting study done where they looked at the support seeking behaviors of men and they found that there was three different levels. There was requesting support and then there was um, offering support and then receiving support. So men were likely to, you know, request it. They'd say like, oh, you know, this is my first time in this forum, but I'm really stressed about this. And then men were very likely to offer it much more surprisingly than people thought. Like they would give a lot of good emotional support. Like, hey, I've been there as well. It's really tough. Um, it's going to get better. Or really empathizing with their perspective online. And then the one that was the third point, the receiving support is one that I think that goes unlooked at a lot. And it's for men and women too. So many times we're, we're good at offering and uh, even getting support, but like really receiving it is another level of challenge. Many times people just aren't likely to take it in, right? They, they kind of sometimes push it away. And I think men, that's very common. Like I've seen that in my clinical practice where their wife will offer them some kind of support and they'll say like, I don't know what to do with that. Almost like you have to do something with it. And it's almost as if like, well, what about if you just received it? Like if you just received the support, you allowed yourself to take it in. But that again, challenges those dominant masculine scripts of men just typically don't allow themselves to be helped. So it's, it's a shift, right? They really have to change their, the way they define themselves in a, in a sense. And I think that's what this whole journey is about. Like men have to redefine their own identities uh, throughout this whole thing. Well, I have so many comments on uh, so many thoughts coming to all the different pieces that you just described. But that idea of creating a new identity. Let's just go with that first. That um, what what is that process like for somebody who is struggling with infertility and struggling with you know either, or, uh, let's say just first where it's a couple's experience versus exclusively where we know that it's male factor, which is you know kind of its own unique story. But I'd like to address both where yeah. the development of this identity of somebody who is struggling, but also the the struggle when you know that it is your physical issue that is creating this challenge yeah that's a great question i think i think the first step is going to be awareness for people right they have to stop and and look at the beliefs that have been that have gone unassumed or just unacknowledged for a long time right like they may have to look at their beliefs about potential parenthood and what it would mean to them to be a father and what it means to them to be a uh, a partner and uh, to support their partner during times of stress. Um, what it means when friends and family seem to be moving on in their lives and, and the religious community is um, kind of celebrating all these other couples who are having children and they aren't like, what does that say about their role in that community and their faith? And so there's so many elements to their identity that just get kind of like, um, they have to get examined, right? Pretty closely. So I think the process is, 
the awareness of like bringing it up and saying like, and looking at some of those thoughts and beliefs. And part of the process is going to be like challenging some of those, those thoughts. And uh, it might be that, you know, that someone says like, if I, you know, parenthood is, I, I have to be a parent no matter what to be a, to be a good person. And I don't want to say that that's not a, you know, a, a great thing that to desire, but if it's so rigid that you have to be that and biologically you and your partner can't do that, there needs to be a revision of that, right? To be like, you can find value in, in other areas of your life and it may not be this area. So part of it is the awareness, the, the looking at the, the thoughts and things that have shaped it. And then the other part of that's going to be grief. And it's going to be like a process of, of moving through and letting go of these deeply held assumptions and beliefs. That's very challenging, right? That is a very tough process for people to really let go of some of these things and alter them. Um, but if people get through that, then it leads to, to you know, a kind of acceptance, which is, I think, the, uh, the place that people want to end up to. But that's a tough journey, right? You can't just say like, oh, I'll accept it. I'll, I'll particularly accept it uh, that I'm infertile if, uh, if it means that we can have less stress and we can have a child eventually. It's got to be this idea that um, my, I'm redefining the sense of who I am and who my partner is and what our, what our lives may look like. Yeah, and I think about that, especially within the community or within culture where they're not changing, right? The culture exists, is, right. that exists is one that highly prioritizes family, family building and is incredibly family centric. So especially within the Jewish culture, you know, that, that and especially within the more religious of the Jewish communities, um, it's everything is family. It, we, we have similar challenges with people who are single and unmarried. It's like, where do I belong in a community that is so deeply kind of centered around creation of, of those family systems? Right. Um, what I'm wondering, a lot of what you just expressed felt like uh, it would be the kind of thing that I could do in a therapeutic environment, right? Like if I was in therapy, I would be working yeah. on that identity shift. Can you give me some pointers or ideas if I was a, I'm not in therapy, right? I'm the wife of a man who is really deeply struggling. Maybe it's male factor. Maybe it's just what we are struggling and he's refusing to go to therapy, right? right How often right. do we hear that? Tell me some pointers. Like what are some of the messages that you want me to hear as a, as a person in struggle, but also coping with and loving this person that is my partner, but who I can't like kind of reach in this way and knowing he needs yeah. to do his own work, but what are some yeah. of my pointers? What am I yeah. thinking about? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, not everyone is going to go to therapy and it's not for everyone. And that kind of big journey of grieving and uh, some people are going to say like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, but I think that journey can be had for people in more simple ways. So for instance, I think for a partner examining how they are coping with infertility themselves and how their partner copes, and how they communicate about that with each other. Now that's a really, that, that probably has evolved over time, right? The communication in the early days were probably very, was very good. There was probably likely a, a sense that maybe we're going through a shared struggle, we can get through this. But over time, that tends to break down if the treatments are failing and if, the, and if people are feeling stuck and kind of individual coping patterns become more divisive. It's not a great word, but they just, they, they push people apart in a way. So I would say starting to connect with small bridges about, uh, look, I know that, you know, you're coping in your own way. I'm, I'm going through this as well. How can I, you know, help talk to you about this? Or how can we at least have some kind of conversations about this? 
the partner may be like, I don't want to ever talk about it. Um, that's, that's difficult because that's kind of a non-starter in a way because there's, there's, there's so much happening emotionally that people do need to talk about it. Um, but I think just a very gentle first step would be connecting at a very like relational level about, look, you're important to me. You're my partner in this. I can see that you're struggling. Now that we handle it differently, is there a way that we can, you know, that I could support you in, in a better way? It might be that the, that the male says like, I need you to let go of these things for me, or I need you to, to do this, but some kind of like a, you know, a, a, an interaction that, that brings out kind of some um, repair or some healing. Maybe there's been some old rifts about communicating in the past where there's been some difficulties. Now it could just be that the man is, maybe the relationship has been great, but the man's just really struggling on his own and his own, his own identity and his own difficulties. Um, just even, even acknowledging the importance of, say, disclosing is, is valuable. So there was a study that came out that showed that, that, that men who were experiencing depression, like what was contributing to that? And the main factor was disclosure. Like men who just did not tell anyone, no one else knew but their partner or close people close to them, they really struggled more with depression. So really just encouraging them to find someone to talk to, like, may, you know, hey, is there one of your friends that you can just kind of talk to about this or even encouraging them to like find an online support group or maybe they just start a blog where they start, they just start writing in anonymity and maybe it's not even never going to be published, but they can just at least get some of this out because there's, a, again, there's a lot happening under the surface. You know, if someone says like, oh, it doesn't bother me at all, but clearly there's like the relationship is strained. Obviously there are things there and discussing that i think just in in various ways right it can be journaling and blogging for no one else to see but it could be like going with one of those online support groups where you're just like hey my partner's really struggling i don't know what to do with this what do you think getting advice from another man who's gone through it feels better i think it's like it, it's it's better than say if they don't want to go to therapy then having a therapist kind of tell them you know what they should be doing they're more likely to implement it so I think those uh, are maybe some strategies yeah. to start with. Yeah. Is there any other small thing that you might recommend that is protective to the marriage, to the relationship? Um, I think keeping the sexual relationship healthy is important. Um, there have been some research that shows that um, if the sexual relationship becomes strained, which it frequently does because of the close connection between sex and pregnancy and infertility, um, that it doesn't usually repair and get better on its own unless people really devote time to making it better. So I would say like prioritizing the sexual relationship, even having it be if they're not having sex related to infertility, just like some time that's, hey, this is just, this is just for us to connect. That can be very protective. Um, and I think finding ways to, um, you know, it might be like how they disclose this to other people might be a wedge between them. So if they can come up with maybe some consensus, like maybe one partner says like, look, I don't want to talk about this with anyone. And the other partner says like, this is really tough on me. I think that, you know, if I could just tell this person or this person, it would be helpful. That can actually take pressure off the relationship because the person could then have some outside supports and it can, it can help. So even if they, maybe they challenge old disclosure patterns that they've come down on and said, I don't want, you know, you can't talk about, this is really between us and don't talk about this with anyone else. Giving that partner permission to have some kind of support is, is probably a good protective factor for the relationship too. I love that. 
I absolutely love that. And I, I've seen it actually present this up in therapy where actually sometimes the partner will say, please don't even tell the therapist what is honestly happening medically. And it's it's so painful to see, usually it's her struggling with um, yeah. not being able to disclose in the most intimate spaces in that therapeutic room to not be able to, to disclose properly. So right. fascinating. I have one other question for you. Um, you mentioned that concept, I'm going back to a minute towards the social support question. I just, it, it struck a chord with me in the idea of how our social networks are newly created or like kind of, I would say almost like being created differently now over time when we're dealing with things like social media. Do we have any sense of how this younger generation who has really been raised in a social network that's been almost exclusively online, yeah. um, how their development of a social network is changing and how that will impact potentially, can we extrapolate any kind of um, concern or value in the creation of a social network and how each men and women are doing it maybe a little bit differently generationally? Is there a difference? And, and what are some of the questions that researchers are asking about that space? Yeah, I think there's there, there are changes happening. So they did a, a recent study in the UK that basically found that um, older men did prefer to keep it to themselves and only talk to their doctors about fertility issues. They didn't want to even talk to family or friends. But they found in that same study that the younger cohort, like 22 to 30, actually did want to talk to their family and friends, did prefer that. And part of that is that online uh, presence as well. Is there's And there's less of a... I think that's one of the impacts of the generations is there's less secrecy. There's just more openness and more disclosure. So I think you'll see that probably more common that people will be willing to talk about it more now, but that creates its own sets of challenges as well about the level of openness, right? Like how open, you know, for some is because people might not agree on the level of openness, right? About how they do that. Cause some things are very intimate and very shared. Like I remember like Chrissy Teigen sharing uh, on, in, on her Instagram, pictures of right after a miscarriage or right after a, a fail or a, a sonogram. And I was, you know, pretty stunned. It was, it was very moving, but that's a, that's a, the most open I've ever seen ever, you know, very intimate photos about that. Right. Like, um, and so, but I think that in the younger generations, there won't be this stigma necessarily of so much shame. And there's just more of, I think of more of an openness for just even say diversity and family form, right? Like it, like if you're a, a man who used donor sperm and you're a, let's say that you're a, a you know in a heterosexual couple um, a lot of times that would be kept very secret and it might still because i think that's a really big challenge but i think it would has the potential to be less so in the future just because of the level of openness that people have partly with that with online with just posting things online doesn't feel as difficult oftentimes for people to disclose something that's very very personal to them um, but yeah, I think researchers are asking these, these questions about what, how that might change. And I think that's a big one is, is how might sharing on social media about your infertility journey change? Because I've seen that people will go through that as well, where they'll, they'll talk about, you know, hey, we've been diagnosed as infertile. We're going through IVF and they're very excited and they're getting lots of support. But if the treatment fails, that's very difficult because although they're receiving support, they have to probably explain it to lots and lots of people. So oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll become more reserved about how open they are. So mm -hmm. it's always a, a, a learning curve there, I think, for people. And, and it's just sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I'd be curious to see in the long run also is, do, is that online feedback the same thing as sitting with another human face-to-face 
right. getting support. If it's a therapist or a best friend or you know a buddy, is there is there a difference in the value yeah. of this kind of intense feedback versus this kind of more intimate feedback? And I guess that will leave that for the researchers for the future, yeah. and we'll keep an eye on what that looks like. Um, this has been a great conversation. I deeply appreciate you spending some time with us. Is there any last comment or thoughts that you want to share with the audience relating to men and infertility? Yeah, one thing I was thinking about is that the most the, the way to destigmatize something and the way to take the shame out of it is to bring it into the light. And one of the best ways to do that is like if, if a prominent member of a community has gone through something that's stigmatizing and they can talk about it, that is super, incredibly powerful, right? So if there was a member of the Jewish community who, and, and a male member, like a, a rabbi or someone who's very well known in a particular congregation, and they can openly talk about their infertility, which would be so difficult. I know that's, that's a huge thing. But that, I think, would help people who are going through that to say, oh, you know, I've never, like if that person can, can have that experience, you know, maybe this level of brokenness I feel, this level of shame I feel, isn't true. Because look, this person, I respect this person. And, and in fact, when they share their struggle, I feel more connected to them, or I feel like they're more human. So I think, you know, if, there's, if there are people out there in the community who have gone through it, who can break some of those silence barriers and share their story, I think that makes a huge difference um, in targeted communities because people then can see that and say, man, and then kind of